This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 8, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Kevin Wagner discusses an exoplanet in a three-star system. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. First up, we have a story, a sad story, about our knees. How are your knees, Dave? Ever feel a twinge now and again? <laughs> my knees are okay, but I'm not a runner. I think if I were, my knees would probably be worse. And Sarah, your knees? They're just fine. Thank you. Again, I'm not a runner either, um, but that's not the case for a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people wear out their knees, as they say, and it turns out that wearing out may be irreversible. Right. This study relies on this really cool technique I've written about in the past, and it relies on nuclear weapons testing. It turns out after World War II, a lot of nations were detonating nuclear bombs in the atmosphere. And what that did was it that pumped a lot of an isotope known as carbon-14, which is a heavier version of carbon, into the atmosphere. Now, our bodies take up that carbon-14, and there's still some of that up there. So even people born today are going to take up a little bit of that heavy carbon, not as much as if they were born 50 years ago. But what the researchers can do and what they did in this study was they said, well, if you know, when you're five years old, your body's still making cartilage. It's incorporating this heavy carbon-14. Now, when you're 50 years old, do you still have a lot of that heavy carbon-14 in your cartilage? If so, it means your cartilage hasn't been turning over because you basically still have the same cartilage you had when you're five years old. But if all of a sudden all that carbon-14 or a lot of it is missing, that means you are creating new cartilage because you've replaced all that old cartilage that had the the carbon-14 in it with new cartilage that has a lot less carbon-14 in it. And that's what they saw. They saw that there's this window of development for our cartilage, and then there's not a replacement going on later. Exactly. Why hasn't this been seen before? I mean, everybody knows that your knees get achy as you get old, but no one's really been able to pin down that it's just the cartilage not being replaced. Right. This has been really hard to study. In fact, and there's been conflicting studies in the past where some scientists have seen cartilage growth and others haven't. But this seems to be the most direct way to get at the answer to this question. So this is pretty bad news. And the takeaway would probably be protect the cartilage that you have. Stop running. No, just protect the cartilage you have. But is there another side? Could we now try to figure out how to stimulate growth of new cartilage. Well, right now that we know that it doesn't happen, we can sort of focus on ways to potentially make it happen rather than keep on trying to figure out 
if it does happen. Next up, we have a story on genetically engineered noses. Animals like dogs and mice are amazing at detecting odors. I know dogs can find bombs, detect cancer in people, even find blood sugar levels that are low in people. And they have thousands of genes related to odor detection that seems to help with this. But what if we could build a better nose, Dave? (laughs) Does a better nose mean even more odor receptors, Uh, you know, detecting a bigger diversity of chemicals? Or, well, maybe in this case, a better nose means just being able to be specialized for a certain type of chemicals. So what we know is that there's sort of an even distribution of these odorant receptors throughout our olfactory system. And each receptor is represented by about 0.1% of the neurons. So you have a ton of neurons kind of all specializing uh, for different odors. And so the question in this study was, well, can we sort of skew that ratio a bit? Can we make a lot more neurons concentrated on just a particular odor? And will that improve an animal's ability to detect that odor? What they did was they somehow created this bias in a mouse. How did they do that? They developed a string of DNA when injected into the nucleus of a fertilized mouse egg appear to make the olfactory neurons choose a particular odorant receptor called M71. Now, M71 is usually just represented by a tiny fraction of the olfactory neurons. But when the researchers did a little bit more genetic tinkering, uh, they were able to get M71 to be represented in 1% of the neurons. That was a tenfold increase of what they saw previously. And what exactly does this receptor respond to? M71 is a receptor that detects a chemical called acetophenone. And this is a smell that resembles jasmine, almond, and honeysuckle. Sounds nice. So that's all with mice. And then they started to cross into adding human detectors in here? They added a human odor receptor called OR1A1. And this detects a chemical which has sort of more of a pepperminty smell. The next step then was to see if this affects behavior. So they've been able to skew the representation of this odorant receptor in the brain of mice. But what's it like for that mouse when this happens? Well, what the researchers did is they put a couple of these chemicals in water and they basically trained the mice to avoid the water if it smelled like these chemicals. And what they found is these super sniffing mice were 100 times more sensitive to these smells than normal mice. And so how many steps until we weaponize this, really? <laughs> or or do the opposite, right? Or prevent right. Our, ourselves from being attacked by weapons. I mean, that's, that's a part of the idea here is can we develop a team of super sniffing mice? And that might not only have applications for defense, for bomb sniffing, but even as you alluded to earlier, Sarah, this idea of sensing changes in our body, low blood sugar, maybe chemicals that rise in response to stress things that might uh, help us in our daily lives. So we would just have mice crawling all over us detecting things? That's the basic idea. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lastly, we have a story on an artificial animal. We publish a lot of papers here at Science that, that kind of look at mimicking animals in robotic form because you can learn a lot about how to build things efficiently by looking at how evolution has already solved the problem. So This is a new one to me, a robot with living parts, kind of like an animal mixed with uh, plastic, and then it, it actually moves. It's based on the body plan of a ray, which is a sea creature that looks 
kind of like a bat or a bird in that it flies through the water. I helped work on a video for this, so I got to see one up close. Not a living one, but one embedded in a slide because they're very small. They're only about 16 millimeters, the body. And it's a layer of elastomer, which is silicon, like, you know, like a breast implant. So it's a transparent body and it has a layer of cardiomyocytes on it. And that's heart cells. They've been printed onto it, like on a matrix. So it's a very specific pattern. And those heart cells have been genetically engineered to contract when exposed to a certain frequency of light. So that's your moving body part. It's a living, moving body part kind of laid atop a plastic layer with a stiff gold skeleton in the middle that resists that push from the muscle cells contracting. So the muscle cells contract, and then the skeleton kind of pushes back. And they do swim when you blink a light them. Yeah, you can actually see that in your video. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And the other cool thing was actually can make the robot go left and right too, right? Depending on sort of where they shine the light. Right. So when the frequencies were different, basically the wings would flap at different frequencies. And so then you would get it to turn. And so they have this little double flashing light that, you know, that kind of move away and in front of the ray and it turns around little barriers. You know, the, the big question I think for everybody as well is this just sort of a cool like little toy these researchers have created or are there bigger applications? And, and there are because... The way this robot moves is sort of similar to the way, you know, you can imagine sort of our heart moves. I mean, our heart is sort of expanding and contracting, which is sort of what we're seeing a bit in the, the wings of this robot. And so the, the end goal for some of this research is really to develop something like an artificial organ, an artificial heart, um, that would be sort of a combination of living cells and living tissues and robotic components. The researcher actually had a, a kind of a cool motive underlying all of this, even though, yes, it can build towards creating a, an artificial heart as well. He was really inspired by his seven-year-old daughter. They would take trips to the aquarium, and he would see these animals, which sort of inspired him to want to recreate this in the lab. And so he's not just trying to get on the cover of science. He's <laughs> also trying to impress his kids. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dave, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how long you can stare at someone before you make them uncomfortable. Also a story about how goats are like dogs, at least when it comes to solving problems. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about whether the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. is finally going to get a raise. Also a story about why Canadian researchers are up in arms over proposed big changes to their peer review system. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Okay, Dave, so I was going to uh, read an ad for Blue Apron, and I mentioned it, and you said that you already use it. So why don't you tell people what it is and why you like it? Yeah, my wife and I have been using it for about a year now. It's basically a meal delivery service. So every week, Blue Apron sends you the ingredients for three meals. And what's kind of cool about it is it takes a lot of the guesswork and the thinking and the time out of shopping and making meals from scratch, but you still have the ingredients. So you get to feel like you're making the meal yourself, which is pretty cool. And before my wife and I are very busy people, we have two, three-year-olds and we were spending a lot of time eating a lot of frozen pizza and canned soup, which got really old. And we we're also doing a lot of delivery, which was getting very expensive. And so the cool thing about Blue Apron is there's a lot of variety. There's different meals every week. I think we've been doing it for a year and I'm not sure we've ever had the same meal twice at Blue Apron. 
For example, this month, some of the meals are creamy shrimp fettuccine, sweet chili chicken, and spiced steak and tomato avocado salad. So we actually have a deal for our listeners, uh, for Science Magazine podcast listeners. Yeah, I wish I had gotten this deal. But this is, uh, if you go to blueapron.com slash science mag, that's S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G, you're going to get your first three meals for free with free shipping. And one more time, that's blueapron.com forward slash science mag. As we learn more and more about exoplanets, we find we know less and less about what we thought were kind of as the basics, why planets are where they are in relation to their stars and how they formed. Kevin Wagner is here to talk about the latest unexpected exoplanet, a young Jovian planet in a three-star system. Kevin, can we start with a description of this three-star system? Okay, so there are three stars, stars A, B, and C. And stars B and C are very close together, and they're in a mutual orbit around star A. And star A has a planet around it at about a third of the distance to stars B and C. And it's a very surprising configuration that we haven't seen in any other planetary system before, where the planet is so close to the stars in the multi-star system. I call this planet Jovian in my introduction, which means it's a gas giant. Uh, what else do we know about it? Yes, it's a jovial planet. It's a very happy planet. I like to make that, that typo yeah, exactly. myself. Yes, it's a jovian planet. So it's, it's Jupiter-like. It's four times as massive as Jupiter, but it's much younger than Jupiter. So it's much hotter. It's about 850 Kelvin. It has two seasons on it. One of them is marked by triple sunsets and triple sunrises every day as the planet is on the opposite side of its three stars. Yeah, but the other season is marked by near-constant daylight as it's between the three stars. And these seasons are longer than a human lifetime because the orbit of the planet is about 500 years. Is there any way to know how quickly the planet is spinning? There is, but it's challenging, and we can't do it yet with this planet, but hopefully we will be able to maybe in the next five to ten years with telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope. There's a lot of reasons that you're seeing something unique here. Part of it is a technique you're using. Part of it is where you're looking. But those things are related to each other, right? So you wanted to look at young systems so that planets were brighter. And you also looked further away from stars than you necessarily would with indirect detection. Can you talk about some of these differences that using direct detection versus indirect detection brings to finding exoplanets? Well, like you said, we're looking at younger stars typically, but we could look at young stars with transits and radial velocity too. The young, the young aspect of it is really more a limitation of the technique of direct imaging. We can only see planets by direct imaging when they are young. But where planets, where the planets are that we're detecting via direct imaging in their systems, that is a unique, unique aspect of it. So direct imaging can detect planets that are very far away from their stars. Not that the transit method or the radial velocity method or indirect methods can't detect planets that are that far away. It's that they're limited by the time scale that it would take to find a planet on a 500-year orbit. It would take a very long time for that planet to transit its right. star, unless it's not feasible to find them via these other methods. So what, else, what other unique things can we learn from direct imaging of a planet? Well, we can learn about their atmospheres directly. And in that, we can study their composition 
which can give us clues about their formation, about where they formed in their systems, and then from where we see them now, that can tell us about their migration history and the dynamical history of these exoplanetary systems. So I mentioned a little bit about how your method influences where you look, but how exactly did you decide what part of the universe to look at for this exoplanet? So this is one of the nearest clusters of young stars to the sun, and it's a unique cluster that we know its age very well. And knowing the age of an exoplanet host star very well translates into knowing its mass very well. So these stars in what we call the Scorpius-Centaurus-Lupus-OB association contain stars whose ages we know roughly to about within a million years, which compared to stars in the solar neighborhood whose ages we only know to save 20 to 100 million years in some cases. Putting all this together, what we know about the position of this planet, its atmosphere, its mass, what do we now know about how it was formed and how it ended up in the position that it's in? What we know right now is that it's in a very surprising position being so far out in its system and so close to these other stars. So it's about 80 times as far away from its star as the Earth is from the Sun. And out there, there's very little material available for planet formation, and things progress very slowly at those larger orbital distances. And that's the big surprise here in the paper is the location of this planet. Why is it so surprising? Just because it's so far out? In part, it's surprising because it's so far out. We don't know of very many planets that are this far out from their star. One, maybe two, kind of depending on your definition of what's a planet. So this is one of two or three planets that is this far away from its star, which is one puzzling. But it's also puzzling that it is that far out with these other stars so close. And the presence of these other stars can cause the planet to become unstable and to be ejected from the system. So we weren't really expecting to find a planet in this location in such a system. It seems like we're going to be, we're going to just keep finding these extraordinary exoplanets and we're going to just keep learning new things about the different configurations these systems can take. Will we be seeing a lot more direct detections? Yes, we will. So there are a few systems on telescopes that have just come online that are starting to look for these gas giant planets that are at wide orbits from their stars. And in the future, direct imaging is going to be a major player in the science drivers of large ground-based telescopes and large space-based telescopes that are going to discover planets that are smaller than gas giants and planets that are closer in to their stars all the way down to Earth-like planets in Earth-like orbits. Kevin, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome, Sarah. It's been my pleasure. Kevin Wagner is a graduate student in the Department of Astronomy and at Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science 
and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.